All right, so uh, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this containership panel. Um, there's a few topics that we wanted to address uh, relating to the upcoming IMO regulations. Also, global trade uh, it seems to be softening a bit. And we'll let our panelists uh, introduce themselves and go over these topics. So Howard, you want to introduce yourself and your company, please? Okay. Yes, I'm Howard Finkel. I'm Executive Vice President of Costco, America's the Container Division. Hi, I'm Tasos Aslidis. I'm uh, the, C the CFO of Eurosys Limited. Uh, we own 15 feeder ships. Also the CFO of Eurodry, which owns dry bulk ships. We'll focus on the containers now. Hello, my name is Konstantin Bark. I'm CEO of MPC Container Ships. We own 68 feeder container ships, and we are lost, uh, listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange. All right, thank you. So um, I, I want to start with, oh. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Hi, George. So um, if you can introduce yourself and the company. Yes, hi. I'm George Yurikos. I'm the executive chairman of Global Ship Lease. We are a container company that uh, leases uh, our ships to liner companies. Great, thank you. So, you know, one, one big topic around shipping right now is the upcoming IMO 2020 regulations and whether to retrofit scrubbers or not. Um, and so, you know, I want to ask our panelists, uh, I know that some of you have scrubber plans, how important do you think the installation of scrubbers will be for earnings as we move beyond 2020 and into 2021, and whether charters will be requiring all vessels, especially on the containing side, to be retrofitted with scrubbers? So, Howard, if you could make it. Yeah, um, uh, probably a little bit different take than the other panelists on this. Um, Costco, part of our fleet, uh, will be, uh, will, will have scrubbers. Uh, I think still at this point, the majority of uh, our plan is to buy the low sulfur fuel. Um, I think it's good. this is going to be very difficult for us. Um, the, uh, in the past, uh, bunker was something, uh, I'd say around seven or eight years ago, that uh, the carriers got right after years of having uh, antitrust immunity and, and not doing anything with rates. Uh, we were able to get a, uh, a common index that everybody was using through a talking agreement. That talking agreement went away around two and a half years ago. Right now, everybody has uh, different, uh, different formulas. Um, I'm a little concerned because the way the contracts were written this year, um, basically it says uh, around sep between September and November, we can sit down and start talking about uh, the new bunker. Uh, but there's nothing solid. Uh, I've seen some uh, things in the press, different lines. I know Maersk is looking at doing it a different way. Uh, I'm just hoping that this doesn't turn into uh, a commercial issue, the bunker, because we got to put that off the table. But as far as scrubbers go, um, I think it's going to take a while till that technology is fully utilized. There's not as many shipyards that actually can do it at one time, so the, uh, the carriers that are going to uh, use scrubbers as their main way of dealing with this. I think it's gonna take a while before the, uh, their vessels are all fitted properly. So it's, uh, we're looking at some challenges. Okay. Tassos? 
putting scrubbers or not, it's an investment decision that depends on a, of a number of assumptions, which change depending on the size of the ship and how you view the fuel differential and the like. Uh, pay, the payback time of the investment is an important criteria. For ships like ours, which are smaller ones, uh, that would have required a longer time to pay back the, the investment, we have taken the position of wait and see and counting on using the more expensive fuel for the, for the time being to satisfy the emission requirements and seeing how the differentials play. I mean, given that we have also ships that are of medium age vintage, it would make less sense for ships like that to invest in, in scrubbers. So we're staying for the time being, and I think we're staying with not putting scrubbers and waiting to see how the market develops. Also, in our case, most of our peers, I understand, do not, are not planning to put scrubbers, so we won't there wouldn't be, I believe, a two-tier market be being developed in the feeder sector. George? Well, I think the, there's a big difference between the container industry and dry bulk and tankers. Uh, in so the fact that in containers, the fuel is always paid by the charters. We do not do voyage charters like the tankers or bulkers can do. And therefore, if we had a scrubber, the full, the full benefit would be given to the charter. The charter would take the full benefit. So it's a matter of what the charter then would be willing to share with us. Similarly, we have faced the same problem when we were ordering new design ships, the eco-type ships, uh, in containers because the engines are five times the size of an equally sized tanker or bulkier, the eco effect is substantially more strong than uh, in the other types of ships. S since you have a bigger engine, you burn a lot more fuel and the speeds are much higher. Uh, when we did build these ships, we have seen a differential in uh, the charter rates. These ships are getting a higher charter rate, but they're not getting, they never get the full benefit. I mean, if we, if we save ourselves, I don't know, 30 tons, if we, if we burn 30 tons less than a non-fuel efficient ship, we're not getting 30 tons times the fuel price on the charter rate. So I've seen that uh, once, when you, when, you, when you depend on the charter's decision, uh, we leave it to the charter to decide also on which ships to be scrubber fitted or not. We have three ships that were fitting scrubbers. That was after the charter approached us and asked for a scrubber installation, which the, the charter is providing us a longer period of, to amortize it and a higher charter rate to do so. So our view is we will install scrubbers only when the charters require them. Okay, great. Constantine? Yeah, um, a lot was said already, so I'll try to cut it short. I think generally, I, I personally believe scrubbers will not be the long-term solution anyway. So it, it is an economic um, decision to equip scrubbers. Uh, we will do so on 10 out of 68 ships. Um, and for eight of the, these ships, we already have charters, which provide us with a payback on the basis of a spread of 150 to 200 of less than two years, which in my view is interesting. Um, it's an interesting investment decision. And secondly, and, and uh, in feeders you usually don't have long-term charters, we were able to combine that with slightly longer-term charters at a premium. However, it's, uh, we take a balanced approach for a few reasons. It, it, in the end, it boils down to trading pattern, consumption, and, and other parameters which, for example, I, I would not see in certain trades like intra-Asian trades or other trades where you only look at in some feeder trades on 120, 150 C days. Simply the economic 
doesn't make sense, but on, on others where you operate with high reefer intakes or high reefer cargoes, a lot of consumption, it certainly makes sense to the extent you can get cash flow against it. Um, and we basically initiated our scrubber investment in close dialogue with our chartering partners to be able to capture the benefit. Great, thank you. So, you know, let's talk about the inter-Asian trade, which I think is a nice segue into the next question is, the mainline trades have been a little soft compared to where they were projected to be, um, but the intra-Asia trade and the intra-region trades have been pretty strong. So, Constantine, how do you see that trade evolving in, you know, beyond 20 and 21? If a trade resolution is passed, do you think that that'll spur additional trade and rates improvement in the region, or do you think it'll just follow along with the 3 to 4% growth that people are projecting now? First of all, I think the trade war so far has, has created uh, a bit of a reshuffling of, of some of the trades. I mean, uh, exports into the U.S. out of China have come down by, what, 7% 7, 7 or so this year. Um, that has been more than compensated by other regions uh, like Vietnam, like Indonesia, like Thailand. So there's, first of all, there's quite a bit of reshuffling in some of these intra-Asian trades, which is good for, for flexible ships. So, so we, with our feeder fleet, feel quite comfortable in, in intra-Asian trades in, in that respect, because it's about flexibility and flexible use of uh, tonnage. Um, there is obviously an effect if the overall market goes down, there will be a knock-on effect also on centralizing and decentralizing these cargoes and some of the intra-Asian trades. But intra-regional trades, as such, will continue to grow, in my view, especially in the region, because you have rising economies beyond China, and as such, I personally think that the intra-Asian and intra-regional markets will continue to grow. By the way, uh, intra-regional trade makes up 44% uh, of global trade in terms of cargo volume, so it's the most relevant uh, trade um, as such, and I believe that trade will continue to grow going forward. George, you, you want to add? Yeah. My, my view is that uh, it's a bit controversial. Uh, trade wars, net-net, uh, have been a very positive for the container industry. Uh, the reason being uh, twofold. One is that uh, what uh, Constantine said, that the volumes on a net basis have increased. Uh, and by the way, just to put in perspective, the volumes between the uh, US and China is 6.5% of the global volumes. So we're not talking about a huge number. So if this six and a half is reduced by half, you're looking at three, three and a quarter reduction in volumes. That volume has been soaked up and more than that by the various goods being shipped to other countries, either for final assembly so that they're not named as Chinese built or the production has been moved out of China altogether. So on a volume, on a, vol on a net volume, we have, we have been, more volumes because of the trade war. The second, even more important point of the trade war benefit in containers is that there has been virtually very little orders, if at all, uh, over the last 18 months because the psychology is negative. So that has kept the supply in check. And I think the, the container story is a supply story. As the last 30 years, we always had a positive increase in cargoes year on year, except for one year, the 2009 with the Lehman. But apart from that one-off effect, we always have growth, sometimes bigger, sometimes lesser, but always growth. So how can you have a cyclical business when you have non-cyclical demand, simply because of supply? So it's the supply we have to look at. 
and the supply right now is at, at a great point due to, you know, non-orders. I think I agree with both of uh, Constantine and, and George. Uh, I think the, the main line trades depend more on the global growth and what Germany and US and, and China do. Um, the, the regional trades depend a lot more on the regional economies and there has been significant growth, especially as it has been for the last uh, decade or so in, in, in Asia and uh, South America, etc. So the regional trades have their own dynamic and they could grow at a, at a growth rate that is different from the overall um, uh, macro trends. And at the same time, it's a different topic, but you are very right talking about supplies. Containers is a supply store now. The order book is at the lowest over the last 20 years, pretty much across segments, especially the feeders. So I think you know, it's a, a good foundation to look at the industry. And when the trade uncertainties uh, sort uh, themselves out, we expect strong years for, the, for, for, for our sector, at least. Okay. Howard, I got a different question for you since you have big ships. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for the first half of the year, the, the westbound trade to Europe, uh, a lot stronger than people had expected. Mm -hmm. right? um, and you know, Costco's shipping uh, segment reported three times higher EBIT margins versus last year. Mm -hmm. What can you attribute that to, especially with the trade war going on? Uh, it, basically, when there's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, Costco, at one time, I'm talking it's strictly the American trade, was uh, probably number five or six to Europe. We've never been, like now we're number three in the world, but we've never been the top three into Europe. Uh, so we scaled back quite a bit because the rates had gone very, very low. And uh, just now with the, uh, the challenges in the Trans-Pacific trade, we're just focusing on other trades and, and people looking at supplies from other areas. So where there's a, a vacuum, uh, things come in to, to take their place. Now Europe is never going to take the place of the Trans-Pacific. But uh, just as far as our trade growth, I think just uh, paying a little bit more attention to this trade, putting more tonnage in the trade, and uh, because of the uncertainties, of, especially in Trans-Pacific, between the giant you know, US and, and uh, China, uh, you get some opportunities that we've, uh, we've taken good advantage of. Right. And how much of the Hanjin bankruptcy were you able to take advantage of and capture more share? Um, so that's a hard question. You know, we, uh, we were in a, an alliance with Hanjin. So it was kind of a natural that we took some of their, uh, some of the business came, there, uh, came our way. Um, of course, the majority of their business was Korea. And we have, uh, we're, you know, we're a major player in Korea, but considerably smaller than Hanjin. So some of the other players uh, who were more focused on Korea probably took a little bit more, but uh, we got a, quite a bit of growth because when that uh, unfortunate event happened, um, we were probably one of the most uh, economically feasible members of that group. So we definitely got our, our good amount of market share. Gotcha. All right, so, uh, so Tassos, you mentioned the order book being relatively low. Um, that should help with supply. But, you know, if you look at what the current order book shows on the this, on this smaller vessels, 
there, there is some, there is a sizable order book, right? So uh, what I count is about 230 vessels on order between 1,000 to 3,000 TU. Um, yeah, yeah. And the delivery schedule that is toward, through 2021. Is there enough scrapping that'll occur and enough demand to absorb this additional tonnage? Indeed, the order book for feeders for the first time is the largest order book within the container sector. It's, I think, around 11%, while the overall is about 10%. Yeah. Both numbers, I mean, the, the overall number is at historical lows, more, I think more than 20-year lows. The, the interesting thing with the feeders is also they have the highest number of elderships. More than 20% is over 20 years. So the, you could expect that uh, there is there, there are there the elements of a balanced uh, growth. Uh, the, se the sector was underbuilt before. I think uh, is getting uh, filled up again due to the aging. So I don't see, I don't have any worries about supply pressure uh, on the sector. Okay, yeah. but with rates being strong, let's say they're right now they're about nine thousand to ten thousand dollars a day uh, for even for the old vessels. You uh, you guys okay. operate twenty-five year plus vessels. And they're earning good rates. OPEX is low. They're manageable. At what point do you now scrap those vessels and acquire new tonnage? That is very much on a vessel-by-vessel vessel decision, depending on what a vessel needs to go through the next special survey. I mean, I'm, I will say that we have two vessels in our fleet that are one is approaching its 30th year, if you can believe it. <laughs> it's the most consistent earner in our fleet. We most likely scrap it at the 30, 30th anniversary, but I cannot guarantee it because if the rates are, are good and the economics of getting it through a survey work out, why not keeping it for another, for another cycle? So it depends very much on what you need to, what, how much money more you need to put on a vessel as it approaches the next big survey, whether that is the 4th at 20 or the 5th at 25 or later, it's, it's a vessel decision. So um, I would imagine there would be some less well-maintained vessels that will go out in the early 20s, and some that are better maintained, I want to believe like ours, they will continue trading in their late 20s. Okay, great. Um, so my next question is for uh, Constantine and George, since you have pretty sizable fleets. How much does scale make a difference in terms of operation and earning power? Or is there no, no difference at all? George, if you want to begin. One. I, I'll, I'll answer, maybe you can join in on, on, on my conclusion. Um, I mean, there is certainly benefit, and the benefit is, is less related to, to OPEX, in my view. Um, you, you have a few synergies on overhead and, and, and on some, let's say, spare part pooling, some operational benefits, but that, that doesn't uh, win the war, so to say. Um, more relevant on the commercial side, so on the chartering side, where a bigger fleet allows you to have a more strategic dialogue also with uh, the charterers. I mean, we have, as I said earlier, we have been able to to conclude uh, scrubber charters for one with one party for a fleet of six ships and with another party for two ships. So there is a, a let's say, strategic dialogue on um, commercial concepts, on chartering concepts that is beneficial. And secondly, and I think uh, very importantly, is uh, um, access to funding, right? And, and, and that, in my view, is a very, uh, critical um, item that you have access to financing 
and for that you need to have a certain volume in order to bring down your cost of capital, which is extremely important in uh, shipping these days, um, with 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 uh, kind of more limitations and more restrictions on available funding, especially also on the credit side. Yeah. Well, on the on the OPEX, uh, I would agree with Constantine. The you know becoming bigger and bigger doesn't really make a big difference in uh, the operating expenses reduction. I mean, you have to have a critical mass, of course. Uh, you have to have a, more than 50 ships to be within this bracket that, you know, whether 50 or 100 doesn't really make a big difference in the operating expense, but 20 to 50 does, it does make. So that's on the OPEX. On the commercial, uh, we, we take a different view. Uh, we, we see a lot of the consolidation, we, a lot of uh, owners, especially in Germany, are joining forces. Uh, we don't uh, want to do that, uh, we will not do that, because we feel that uh, the type of ships that we operate, which is mainly bigger ships, uh, post-Panamaxes, uh, we, we feel it's better served by direct relationships with the liner companies, and uh, what what we've discussed with liner companies is that uh, they, we, we see that they don't obviously view very positively uh, the alliances of uh, owners uh, together as uh, they feel that, you know, that, that is creating uh, too much competition for them. Uh, and our approach is uh, uh, towards liner companies, uh, the more of the partnership approach. So we, we, we go to them and uh, they tell us what they want we have a direct relationship, we don't go via brokers to them. And, you know, depending on what they want, we, we try to sup supply them by our ships or acquiring ships that fit their needs. So this is really our model, uh, more or less. Okay, thank you. Okay, so, you know, if I could switch to uh, the equity markets right now, um, there seems to be a lot of investor fatigue, just general, generally around the shipping sector. Um, and for the container ship sector in the U.S. markets, there's only a handful of players, right? So what, do you, what is the value proposition that you believe your company brings to have investors invest in your company in the long term? Howard, I mean. Um, well, <coughs> still, um, Costco now is the, the China uh, shipping company. Um, we've, uh, we uh, are together with China Shipping and now with OCL. So that part of the world, the Trans-Pacific, uh, we, we have the most expertise. There are challenges, of course, because of what's happening with the uh, trade war. But I think that's going to work itself out. I think uh, the American political scene, I don't want to comment too much about that is in such disarray right now. I think uh, if uh, any, anybody does anything that's going to really damage the trade, there's, they're going to be dead in the water if they're not already. So I think you're going to see the, uh, the China-U.S. situation return. Um, Costco is the expert in this trade lane. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, we're growing in, uh, in Europe. We're growing in the north-south trades. Um, you know, we've, uh, when I started with Costco 25 years ago, uh, after being almost uh, 15 years with U.S. flag carriers, 
And at the time when I joined Costco, uh, everybody was like, how do you go from, I started with Sealand, how do you start, you know, go from Sealand to Costco? And I said, wait. <laughs> and uh, obviously, uh, it's, it's turned out very well. Um, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to get with Costco at a time when China was really starting to emerge and they wanted the knowledge of the, of the U.S. flag carriers. As I said, I was with Sealand. That was the, the carrier who really initiated container shipping. So really, the, uh, the Chinese mentality and the American mentality, uh, I think we did some really great things. Uh, we're a global player. Um, we're number three, and we're on the move. Great. Thank you. Tassos? I think there is a, an interesting cluster that has developed here in the New York, in, in New York capital markets. I, th I counted uh, the other day seven companies now being listed that are focused on containers, and MPC is trading publicly in, in Norway, you understand, right? So it's an eighth one. All these seven companies provide a different segment for the investor to play. Uh, at least in the US, Eurosys is the only one that is exclusively focused on feeders. The sector that we said is a little more flexible and uh, has uh, uh, everybody, every sector, good supply dynamics. So the story we, are, we you can sell to the investors is again the supply story that George mentioned applies to all of us, and then the specific segment within the container sector that you believe has the greatest potential to to rebound. We are focusing on the feeders. If the market gain some more strength and more sustainability on the earnings. I think a key thing for many of us would be to pro start uh, providing some dividend yields to, to our shareholders. That would bring back the, the sector, and dep depending on what you believe about what will happen on the world trade scene, containers and feeders or other vessels uh, would be an investment to play. Thank you. George? Yeah. Well, my job is much easier. Uh, our stock is trading at a heavy discount to an EV. Uh, whether you call it on an EV to EBITDA, which is more likely the metric that uh, container companies uh, with a backlog of uh, charters like we do, uh, we have three years backlog of charters, uh, we're trading at five and a half times. Uh, our peers are trading between eight and a half to nine and a half times. So there's a huge upside in our stock. Uh, with, uh, the company has evolved. GSL had a, a year ago a merger with Poseidon Containers that doubled the fleet and tripled the values of the ships. Since then, we have uh, been continuously delivering uh, shareholder value as we promised. We have fixed uh, uh, $335 million of uh, additional EBITDA into the company by fixing long-term charters. So we, we give tangible value to the shareholders by bringing all these cash flows into the company. We have extended all of our 2020 maturities. Uh, we have uh, taken the decision last two, two weeks ago to raise equity, uh, dilutive to the shareholders, yes, but absolutely necessary in order to uh, raise our liquidity and uh, help us uh, uh, refinance our 2022 end bond uh, earlier so that we can reduce our cost of debt. So that's our next goal. 
So we're strengthening our balance sheet continuously. Our bond is trading at 105%, which shows that the market uh, is uh, considering our uh, credit risk uh, very strong. And now the next thing we want to do is uh, reduce our cost of debt, which will free up even more cash into the balance sheet. We have a very strong balance sheet with lots of cash and a lot of coverage. And in addition to that, we have very specialized ships. We have a lot of new eco-designed ships, wide beam, and our ships have some of the best-in-class reefer capacity. Okay, great, thank you, George. What we can offer is uh, industry <coughs> low cashback, even low leverage on the financial side, significant operational leverage, um, and certainly low residual value risk. And I think residual value risk in shipping is, is, is the item you should manage uh, with due care. Um, and having kind of a low entry point on an asset, in my view, is key in order to earn return on a shipping asset. So we do have quite a spot exposure, so we operate in a spot market, but even in today's market, which is not particularly good, we generate a positive cash flow. Um, we are positive about, especially the supply side, we operate in a market that has the most favorable supply and demand development going forward. Um, with the age profile of the existing fleet on the water and strong demand growth, especially in intra-regional trades. And as such, um, we can offer a significant upside potential um, in a market that has extremely attractive supply and demand balance with low residual value risk, and that is key in shipping in my view. Great, thank you. So, you know, it all comes back to, um, I think, valuation, right? So George mentioned NAV, you guys are trading at a discount, and in terms of uh, EBITDA multiples, you're trading at discount. As an analyst, we run into this problem all the time. Right? What is the correct valuation method? But in the shipping world, it seems like NAV is still the prevailing valuation method that ship owners use. So let me ask the panelists here, how important is NAV? Well, NAV is uh, important definitely in the might of the ship owner. <laughs> that uh, they view their, uh, that with the, their asset um, and they want to transact in close relationship to NAV. So if you are trading near NAV, you are more eager to issue stock around that level. I mean, we have done something similar recently that we uh, acquired for vessels by issuing stock, and that is the model that we would like to use to have Eurosys serve as a platform of consolidation. I mean, I realize we are the smaller of the players, but we're a public platform on the, contain on the feeder containerism side, and uh, we believe we can grow, and the, the, the way to grow is by looking at our NAV and see whether we can issue shares near NAV, uh, plus or minus, okay. I, preferably plus. But um, uh, that, that, that's why NAV is important. It will allow consolidation. I mean, uh, the previous panel was discussing the fact that there were no uh, ship for sales transaction easily done because if you gave your ships in a company that trades at significant discount to NAV as an investor, you get a, an immediate uh, writing down on your investment. So NAV is important, and trading close to it is also important. Okay. George, I know you guys just did a large acquisition last year. Um, how close were you to NAV in that transaction? Well, the, obviously, when we did the transaction, uh, we had two options. We either merge uh, with uh, GSL or sell the fleet if we wanted to liquidate, right? So we, we had the NAV 
obviously, by if you sell chips in the market, you get NAV. Uh, we chose to merge as in, uh, in dry bulk and tankers, when the charters are short, I mean, you usually have up to a year, maybe two in tankers. This is the usual, uh, the ships are trading spot. NAV is very important. But in the container industry, like the LNG industry, where in industries where you have long charters, like two, three, five years, NAV becomes much less important, and it's more important the EV to EBITDA. So we chose to, to do this merger knowing that initially we would trade below what our fleet was worth on, on the street, you know, by selling them, uh, because we believe in the business model that we would build by fixing our ships long-term, chartering our ships long-term, and building on an EV to EBITDA. Right now, our stock is trading around seven and a half dollars, uh, and the EV to EBITDA, that reflects is five and a half times. If we were trading at the peers, our stock would be north of $23. So that's where we're, we're heading, and that's what we think that NAV is a, is, yes, is a, is a matrix, but not that relevant of a matrix in containers. Constant, can you give us a, a little insight into how Norwegian investors view NAV? Well, first of all, I think NAV is one of the data points you should be looking at, but um, obviously risk profile and, and upside potential is another one. So I think NAV has always to be seen in, in, in a few senses. First of all, can you actually realize that NAV? The S&P market at the moment is extremely illiquid, I'd say, and therefore NAV is, is not NAV, right? So I think that needs to be, be factored in. Therefore, I think um, an EV to EBITDA is certainly a, a indicator, another indicator that is worth looking at. At the same time, it also depends on whether you have locked in that EBITDA or not. We, for example, operate on a, uh, pretty much on a spot basis, um, but at rates which, which are close to historical low, generating positive cash flow. So I think you also have to uh, have a view on what's the trend in the industry, what's, what are the rates, um, what will the rates be like tomorrow, how's supply demand looking at. So I think just doing a, a easy NAV or EV EBITDA probably lacks a few aspects that you need to take into consideration as well. However, I think a combination of these things um, has, to be, um, has to be looked at and then uh, taken a conclusion. And I repeat myself by saying residual value risk, in my view, is extremely important. And that is something you need to look at, in particular at the end of, of certain charter arrangements, which are kept, but you will uh, basically stay with the residual value risk. Okay, great, thanks. So uh, my next question is a little different. You guys are all ship owners, to, you know, and you operate vessels. Um, regardless of sector, what vessel segment do you think, do you, are you most bullish on in the next 12 months? I mean, within containers or? After, outside containers, tankers, LPG, LNG, barges. Mm. Constantine, you want to start? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think the tanker space is, is interesting, but has had its rally already. So I think there we have seen quite a bit of revaluation. So I would uh, say that is a, a sector that is interesting, yet already well-priced. Um, on the container side, I think a lot of companies are undervalued, and therefore, from a value appreciation perspective, that's an interesting sector to look at, but not in the next three months. That's more in the next six to 12 months, in my view. But I personally think tankers and, and maybe also LNG is, uh, is, is still interesting at, at this stage. Okay. George? 
Well, I simply don't know about tankers, so I cannot uh, give an opinion. I heard that uh, VLCs are making $300,000 a day. So <laughs> obviously, if I had a VLC, I would be a very rich guy now, but uh, I don't know for how long this will happen. And for uh, Tankers is very interesting always. It's a wild card, though. Things can dramatically change to the positive or to the negative without anybody can predict uh, because there's so many elements. So that's all I can say about tankers, but I guess the investor community is quite interested in tankers from what I understand. Now, if, if you were asking me where I would put my personal money, uh, I would simply put my money in containers. Uh, the reason I, I would do that is because the fundamentals are very supportive and uh, in containers you can uh, get, if when the market is strong, uh, it, you can lock in this strong market for many years to come by fixing long term. That's, a, that's an aspect I like. I don't like, I'm, I'm a bit risk averse person. I don't like too much risk. Uh, I like calculated risk and that's why I, I chose containers as, uh, as my investment. Okay, that's a safe one. Tassel? I'm not very familiar with the LNG and LPG dynamics, so I will keep my comments on the tankers, bulkers, containers. Uh, I think all three sectors are supply stories for after many years of oversupply, we've seen very low order books. That gives a basis, a springboard to, for, the, for the sectors to grow. So I would, for myself, I would create a portfolio across those sectors. The, the example of the tankers is that if you, are, if you have good supply support, small um, changes in demand could make wild scenarios play out. That happened back in 2004-05 for our sectors too. So having supply support uh, for the next two or three years is a very important uh, uh, point and a very attractive point. So I would think all three sectors, uh, obviously tankers have already seen the upside and uh, uh, you have to evaluate it uh, with different, uh, from a different point of view. But looking at supp uh, limited supply growth is a big uh, factor in my consideration. Howard? Yeah. Um, Please don't yeah. say containers. <laughs> we, Costco basically is, is pretty big in all, all the sectors. Um, tankers are very interesting, but uh, I'm, I'm a container guy, even though I've played in, in different markets. Um, what I would say about this is containers, but with a company who is diversified, when things go a little wobbly, you get uh, you get the support of the tankers and the bulkers. Um, that's really <laughs> it's containers with support of the other uh, the other parts of the industry um, is where I'd put my money. Okay, great, thank you. So we have a couple of minutes, so you know we'll take questions. Yes. <clears throat> Other, other asset classes in the shipping sector, the resi residual value? Certainly. I mean, some of our ships we bought uh, just above scrap value. So if, if you look at the residual value at the end of um, uh, charter duration on a very large ship, you, you will remain with a significant, um, let's say, at least rechartering risk. I mean, I'm not saying that risk will materialize, but it's, it's simply a higher risk profile than if you have bought a ship uh, just a shade above uh, scrap value. So that, 
on uh, at least uh, our fleet, we have a significant kind of scrap protection element um, if you look at the fleet compared to um, the larger ships. I mean, that is, that is in essence what I refer to. Yes. Thanks. I had a question for Howard. Um, with the IMO 2020 coming up, I was just wondering how you thought about um, slow steaming of ships or for anyone on the panel and what impact they may, that may have on supply and demand. Um, I'm slow steaming impact slow on steaming supply Slow, okay. Uh, slow steaming, um, even with the bigger ships uh, that are more efficient, I believe is gonna stay. Um, I don't think you're gonna see much of a change in that, um, especially now with uncertainties in the market. Um, you don't want to, and uncertainties if we're going to actually be able to collect the proper, uh, the proper bunker charge. Uh, I think that's going to show a, a lot of what's going to happen with slow steaming and with everything, whether, uh, whether the carriers in the next year or two are going to be profitable or not profitable. I think it's all going to depend on um, fuel. Uh, that's going to be the make it or break it. And right now, there's a lot of uncertainties. As I said, the, uh, the scrubber uh, purchasing the low sulfur fuel, that has not been settled. And what's not settled is uh, how we're going to actually collect this. At a couple of years ago, as an industry, we all knew how we were going to collect it. Now, uh, there's a lot of uncertainties, a lot of differences between different uh, carriers. So I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think slow steaming will remain at this point, and we've got to see what, uh, what we do as far as uh, collecting what we need to for the bunker. I just and kind then, of follow up. So with fuel prices <coughs> increasing, do you think slow steaming will increase as well, or is there room for it to, for ships to slow down even more, or, or kind of stays the same? Uh, right. The, uh, those decisions are made in Shanghai. Right now, I haven't heard of any increase, but I have not heard of any decrease either. May I say that we have we, we charter ships to many charters, and we generally see that uh, services are slowing down. Um, the CEO of Maersk officially has uh, said that uh, the Maersk line is going to slow steam their, their their services by one or two knots. That there's a it's a public uh, statement. Yes. Um, with the new ports that are planned in Nova Scotia, uh, such as Nova Port, you know, uh, the ports that have uh, uh, capacity for some of the largest ships, um, for the some of the feeder routes, would this make some feeder services like to the Great Lakes or to other smaller ports uh, on the East Coast, uh, given that you wouldn't need Jones Act compliant ships, um, would that make such a service viable? Because we, currently we don't have any uh, container service on the Great Lakes. Obviously, if there is a, if, if a new alternative develops uh, that could alter the pattern of trade, I mean, if there is a possibility of uh, feeding off Nova Scotia to the to the ports of the East Coast, uh, that could create some some uh, routes for, for for feeders. 
but it will alter also the, the pattern of trade, and I don't know how that will play out. Uh, All right. Well, I want to thank our panelists once again, um, and thank you for joining us. Thank you.